Go ahead and open up to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your blessing on this time. We know that it's not about me or us or what any of us have done, but it's about you and your greatness and your glory. Jesus, his work, his righteousness, his resurrection. And Lord, what your word has to say to us. So we pray for the work of your spirit now to encourage our hearts to convict us of sin as, as we need. Lord, that you would um, help get me out of the way and let your word speak clearly. And Father, we pray for great fruit from this time. We ask it in, in absolute dependence. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You may not have heard of it, but there's a race called the Badwater Ultra Marathon. Anybody heard of that? Stanley, did you run it? No. Okay. It describes itself as the world's toughest foot race. It takes place every year around July in uh, California's Death Valley Park. Starts at the at the bottom most level and uh, finishes 135 miles. Yes, 135 miles later. At uh, it used to go all the way to the summit of Mount Whitney, but now it just goes to the uh, the entrance of uh, the Mount Whitney Trail. And with the design being. We want to run from the lowest part to the highest part of the contiguous United States of America. So that's what the race was originally intended to do. Uh, the race has actually been relocated this year uh, because of safety concerns by the U.S. Uh, Parks and Services Department. Go figure. Temperatures can reach 120 degrees. There are no rest points provided. You have to provide your own sustenance crew you know, with, with water and whatever other supplies you might need. Um, you're only allowed 48 hours to run it. That's right. You can only run for 48 hours, no more. <laughs> Even though no one has perished in the race, 20 to 40% of the racers don't finish it every year. So we're going to imagine right now two runners step up to the starting line for this bad water ultra marathon. Runner one, he's wearing lightweight and, and, and tough trail shoes. He's got his athletic shorts on and he has a, a light racer's jersey on. He's got his hat, nice and light, again with the, the mesh side panels that allow your head to breathe. Uh, he's got his sunglasses to protect his eyes. He's got sunscreen um, on his face. He's got the water bottle strapped on and he's got his GPS watch on so he doesn't get lost. And he also has his radio to communicate to his sustenance crew who he has brought along with him. 
Racer 2, on the other hand, is wearing a sweatsuit and fuzzy pink bunny slippers. Okay? He, uh, he has a clown uh, wig on, and, and he's wearing a ski mask also. In one hand, he, he holds an open can of Coke, which all you runners know is great for you. Okay? And in the others, he has a, an oar for rowing in case he has the opportunity to go upstream. Downstream, that'd be better. And he has no support crew with him. And obviously this is just completely farcical. Nobody would ever be that ridiculous. But hopefully that paints an image of these two racers looking at this brutal 135-mile course ahead of them. And that's how they prepared. What does their gear say about them? One comes with focus. One comes with understanding. One comes with preparation. One comes with a desire to succeed. And the other comes for either not being allowed to race or, or death. He comes with no understanding, no preparation, no comprehension of what the point is of coming to the Badwater Ultramarathon. Okay. So I want you to think of the race as our life, our lives. Think of it as, as our journey as we serve Christ now. This race that we're going to talk about from Hebrews 12. It's our lives now before we end our course in eternity with Him. And as we progress in this path, in this journey, the, the author of Hebrews, he wants to exhort us to be like racer number one. To be prepared. To have understanding. To have focus. To have a capacity to succeed and a desire for victory in the midst of this race. And so to help accomplish this, he gives us five keys to run in the race of your life that we find here in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. The first key is uh, this, to, to see the bygone saints. Therefore, and you know the, the little maxim, right? What's the therefore, therefore? So whenever you see a therefore, you've got to look back. What is the therefore, therefore? It points us back to chapter 11. And we read of Abel. And his pleasing sacrifice. We read of Enoch avoiding death. Noah constructing the ark. Abraham leaving his home and venturing out towards really an unknown land. We read of Sarah conceiving in old age. The absolute trust of all the patriarchs and God's promises. We read of Moses refusing to be treated as Egyptian royalty. He chose instead to side with God's people. The slaves of the land and their plight. We read of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. We read of the walls of Jericho coming tumbling down. Rahab's act of faith, as well as countless others who conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight, and received children back from the dead. But others were tortured not accepting release. Others experienced mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawed apart, murdered with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and openings. These are what the therefore is there for. It points us back and calls us to this great cloud of witnesses that it refers to. It says, it says, look, look at all these people 
who have done these things, who have endured these things, who have lived out life in the midst of these kind of circumstances, lived out the life of faith. And he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses. So you see, you look back, you see these bygone saints. Now, what does it mean when he says they're witnesses? Okay, a lot of people, when they immediately read that, they, they think that, okay, there's this, there's this great stand of cheerleaders up in heaven watching me, witnessing me run my race, and they're, they're rooting and hollering and cheering and uh, encouraging me on. And uh, I, I don't think that that's actually the point here. Witness, this word used here, refers to someone who gives testimony of or testimony to something. And so they're not giving testimony of us. They're not giving testimony to us. What are they doing? They're giving testimony of and to God and His faithfulness. They're giving testimony of the capacity to run and to finish the race and then to have the, the sustaining grace of God be, be manifest in being able to complete that. And it's interesting, too, if you look back in um, verse 39 of chapter 11, it says these didn't, these didn't even receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. But even then, even though they hadn't received what was promised, they still, they still finish. They give testimony to God and what it is like to run that life of faith and to see it come to fruition. And so the, the, this hall of faith, they don't give witness to us in our own journey. Okay, they're not necessarily looking at us, but we are to look at them. And as we look at them, we see testimony of God's sustaining grace and the ultimate victory of enduring by faith. <clears throat> so this great cloud of witnesses gives affirmation of the sure outcome if we endure the race. You think of these long past pilgrims. And even of, of the more recent dead saints. The recently deceased brothers and sisters. The, uh, the, the, the Puritans. Or even more recent than that. You think of them as, as signposts. Signposts pointing to God. Pointing to eternity. And saying, faith is the victory. There is a sure outcome of this walk of faith. And this outcome is worth the process. They, they, they shout out, God won't let you fail if you are faithful in life. That's their point. Because if there were circumstances that should have short-circuited the life of faith, I mean, sawn in two, stoned, beaten, going back to that litany of what they endured, then they've undergone those circumstances and yet their faith has stood and the goal has been achieved. So others have endured the race and they've emerged victorious. And we take hope and encouragement in that. But how did they do it and how do we do it? It's the second key. You have to shed what holds you back. It says there, after, in light of the fact that we see these bygone saints, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which <laughs> so easily entangles us. So you have to shed that which holds you back. We're instructed to, to lay aside two things. Encumbrances and sin. 
So what's an encumbrance? It's kind of a large word for just a weight. Something that holds you back, weighs you down. It's a burden that restrains. So as, as you look at your life in light of the scripture, because that's what we want to do. We want to see how we're living out what God says in his word. As you look at your life in order to assess <laughs> if something is an encumbrance or not, you don't necessarily ask, okay, is this a sin? But you ask, what does this do to my capacity to run? What does this do to my capacity to live the faith-filled life that God calls us to live? Does it have a positive or a negative effect on my life for Christ? Does it distract or hold back from (laughs) running this race? Then it's an encumbrance and you lay it aside. You notice what he says here. Lay aside every encumbrance. See, the problem with me and the problem with, I think, most of us is that we think we're allotted a certain number of encumbrances. And well, I can, I can do with, I can do with six pounds of encumbrances in my life because I'm still, I'm still running. Well, well, this this seven pound weight over here on my ankle, it's it's okay. But the the author here, he says, he says, lay aside every encumbrance. There is no allotted number of encumbrances. That we're allowed to retain. We're to lay every one of them aside. So does a hobby. Or does a person. A leisure activity. A TV series. A lifestyle pursuit or any other thing. Does that counteract your efforts. At running the race. Does that counteract. Your efforts at living a life of faith. And notice, I'm saying, I'm saying counteract, pull back. This is not, you cannot do anything that does not have spiritual overtones to it. But, as you assess your life, is there something that is restraining you, pulling you back, weighing you down as you seek to live a life of faith? Lay it aside. Does something distract your mind <coughs> excuse me, and your soul from striving for success in, in walking worthy of the calling with which you've been called? As it says in Ephesians 4. Does it distract you or, or keep you from that? Then lay it aside. And this is radical, I know. It's an extreme exhortation. It, it verges on kind of being able to be labeled this hyper-spiritual sense or, or even legalistic. But... We're runners, supposed to run. And and what runner really runs with ankle weights around his ankles? Or what runner says, hey, I'm going to run better if I align my shorts with steel washers? Nobody. Lay that aside. So how about sin? Lay aside the encumbrances and then sin too. It's a sin that entangles us. That's the hazard of sin. It doesn't just weigh you down <coughs> or, or slow your progress as the encumbrances do, but it entangles you. It, it trips you up. It brings you down. It actually has the capacity of knocking you out of the race, of making it so you can't complete the race. If you're laying on the ground with sin wrapped up around you, you are not progressing in the course. Sin and its entanglement is interesting. It can start out as a, a shoelace, shoelace that... That comes untied. And then if you don't deal with that shoelace, then it gets tangled in the other and it gets stepped on. It causes stumbling. 
The shoe slips off because it's loose. Crucial moment. You slip on a rock, you come crashing to the ground, you break your leg, and you're out of the race. So we have to nip it in the bud. Sin, you got to lay it aside. It's going to trip you up. It's going to entangle you in your desire and in your progress in the course. Some things that, that, that this sin specifically refers to, uh, the sin of unbelief. That that's, that's what the author has in mind. and um, That could be true, but ultimately every sin boils down to unbelief. Where God says such and such about this or, or, or this. And you say, well, I, I just don't really believe that what you say is true about this and this. So I'm going to do what I think is true and right. And I'm going to go ahead and pursue these and live in such a way because... I don't really believe. So whether it's unbelief about who God is, unbelief about who Jesus is, or unbelief about what God says, sin in that regard will cripple you, will tangle up your feet, will ruin your progress, and you have to lay it aside. Cut it off. Just Cut it off. Take that sin. It's even just started to wrap around your, 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 your feet and just cut it off. Lay it aside and keep running. So why should we do these things? I mean, you think about some of these encumbrances and some of the sins. There, there's, there's pleasure in there. You know, there's enjoyment in those things. There's no getting around that. So why, why remove those things? Well, it's because of who we are. We're racers. We are runners. We're not spectators who can sit in the stands and enjoy the ankle weight around their ankle as they sit. We're not referees. We're not traffic control. We're not water boys. We're not cheerleaders. We are racers. Ontologically, in a, in a matter of being, that is who we are. We are racers. God bought us to race. He says, race. Therefore, our main objective is to race. To live the life that he's bought us and called us to do. To do otherwise is to deny his purpose in calling us. And shedding encumbrances and laying aside that sin is what you have to do to be a racer, to run the race, to complete the race, to be effective in the race. And so having shed the weights and the sin that holds us back, we run. But Hebrews advocates a particular type of running, a certain perspective, this third key. It's a perspective that says we're to settle in for the long haul. If you think of that 135-mile course and its heat and the distance, the exhaustion of that, if someone comes to the, the Badwater Ultramarathon, and says, well, this will be a breeze. I'll finish this up in 26 minutes and I'll go have an ice cold latte and enjoy, enjoy a little rest after, after the race. They're, they're as good as done. You, you can't view a marathon, an ultra marathon, as a, as a sprint. You have to understand, I have to settle in. Endurance is required. Mental, physical, emotional endurance. The word here is hupomones. It means remaining under. When things are hard, you stay there. You don't run away from it. 
You don't get off the course, run, get, get, look for a, an off-ramp off the racetrack. You remain under it. You endure. You stay on the track that's assigned and you persevere. Even when circumstances scream at us in our flesh to get off the course. That's an interesting question though. Why would we need this type of endurance? So it's, because, it's because of the word used to, de, used to describe the race. Agona. Sounds, sounds a little reminiscent of agony. Right? This word is used only six times. Once here. Five other places. Every other place in the New Testament that it's used, it's translated as conflict, struggle, fight. Okay, context gives us race here, and that's appropriate, but it also flavors the kind of race that we're in. This is not a 5K stroll, you know, to, to benefit the local pet shelter. This is, this is a, a struggle, a conflict, a, a race that is full of tension and hardship. <clears throat> and despite what many are saying, this is not your best your easiest, or even your most fulfilling life now. This race that you are on is not designed to be that way. This race that we are on is a struggle, a conflict, because that best, easiest, and most fulfilling life is yet to come. And that's what you push forward to. But until that point, we have to run. And we have to run with endurance. Because it's a long course. And it's a hard course. This could be discouraging. But we know that this course has a progression and it has a terminus. It doesn't go on and on and on and on and on. And you just wonder, will it ever stop? Yes, it'll stop. When God says, you're done. And he takes you home. You don't go around the curve or, or encounter the struggle and think, that wasn't on the map. No, no, no. It's mapped out. The progression and the terminus are known by God. It's set before us. It's laid out. It's defined. It's understood. Just as Jesus, in the next verse, has joy set out before him, defined and understood, so we can understand the defined race before us. It's not the same for everyone. Everybody has their own race, their own course to run. But each individual's course is clearly defined and demarcated by God himself. Do you think that things are out of control in your life? Sometimes it's easy to think that this would be a sprint. You know, but we need to be ready for a marathon. A trial comes along, sticks around for a couple of days, weeks, and even years, and suddenly it's too much. This race is too much. This is out of control. Surely, my race isn't supposed to entail this much hardship. <clears throat> Consider Paul's life for a moment with me and his response and even his understanding of when his course had finished. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, 
I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul ran a crazy race. I mean, that is a race. It would have been so easy for him to, to lose strength and to, to lose motivation. I mean, after the first beating. Oh, maybe after the second beating. But no, he got, he got three, you know, and then stoned and then shipwrecked. And it goes on and on. It would have been so easy just to, just to lose up, lose hope, to give up. To say, uh, this, is, this is too hard. But he knew his days were marked out. His course <coughs> was marked out. The convolutions of his course were defined by God. And so he persevered until the end where he says in 2 Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, Paul understood the need for endurance. He understood the need to settle in for the long haul, and we're exhorted to do the same. But it's not a mindless endurance. So all these things start to stack up to give us a, a wonderful picture of the race that we're called to lead. It's not a mindless endurance. You don't just grit your teeth and keep going. You don't just grind out the miles in this foggy haze of perseverance. We're told to run with a gaze that is fixed, that is set ahead on one who has, has succeeded in absolute perfection. And this fourth key is to set your gaze on the Savior. <coughs> you fix your eyes on Jesus. While we're running our race, we look to Jesus. And I find this, I, I find this really just fascinating and something that I so often take for granted. And, and Pastor Rick, I'm so grateful for him. He has pointed us so many times to the person of Christ. But you look here and he says, you fix your eyes on Jesus. You don't fix your eyes on the 14,000 to-dos and don't-dos or so, you know, the, 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 the seven yeses and the 18 no's or, or you don't even fix your eyes simply on the Bible in and of itself. You don't fix your eyes on, on, on the self-help gurus who give out these pseudo-spiritual platitudes. You don't even fix your eyes on, on the grounded theologians of our day. Those guys can serve as help and assistance and, and encouragement in the race, but you fix your eyes on the person of Jesus. He leaves out Lord, he leaves out Christ, and he says, Jesus, God become man. You fix your eyes on him. The person of Jesus, the Son of God who came, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, eternal life is knowing God and, and Jesus, who he has sent. The gospel concerns Jesus. It's wrapped up in Jesus. The summing up of all things is to come in Jesus. And he is the one we look to. Like I said, he leaves out Christ. He leaves out Lord. He just says Jesus. This emphasizes his humanity. That's just his human name. God 
became a man, fully man, and lived a perfect, sinless life of faith. And we look to this God-man Jesus. So who is he? As it says in here, he is the author and perfecter of faith. Notice what he left out. It's not our faith. It's faith as a whole, as 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 an idea, as a concept. He's the author and perfecter of faith. The first word, author, can have two connotations. On the one hand, it can refer to a pioneer or a trailblazer, as it were. And on the other hand, it refers to a source or an originator. And in this case, both of these are true. <clears throat> Jesus is the leader, the exemplar, and the source, the one to imitate in the race of faith. You think a situation is too much for faith to handle? Look at Jesus. Look at the God-man Jesus and the life that he lived. Everything he endured by faith, trusting God, and he trailblazed a clear-cut trail for us to follow. He's also the source of faith, the originator. Faith comes from him. He gives us faith, the ability to trust the Lord for things that we cannot see. You trust in him for your salvation. You trust in him for uh, the, the, the fruit from endurance that James and Romans talk about. You trust in him for the assurance of eternity to come. And he gives that faith. Their fruit of faith. And this faith comes from Jesus. He's the author the trailblazer and the originator. And on the other hand, he's also the perfecter of faith. Listen to what John MacArthur says. Jesus is not the, only the author of faith, but also its perfecter, the one who carries it through to completion. He continued to trust his father until he could say, it is finished. These words, along with father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, were Jesus' last words before he died. His work was finished not only in that it was completed, but that it was perfected. If a composer dies while working on a masterpiece, his work on that piece is over. But it is not finished. It is not perfected. On the cross, Jesus' work was both over and finished, perfected. It accomplished exactly what it was meant to accomplish. Because from birth to death, his life was totally committed into his father's hands. There has never been a walk of faith like Jesus. So yeah, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Because he modeled the way to run. Look in verse 2. Second part there says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is all still under setting your gaze on the Savior because you have to know, okay, who is he and what has he done? How do I set my gaze on him? I have to understand him. I have to know him. That's who he was and now this is what he did. He kept the goal in mind. He had a joy set before him. This joy, the joy of redeeming the saints, the joy of bringing pleasure to God, the joy of ultimately having everything come together under him and pointing to the glory of God. He kept that goal in mind and he persevered to the end. Even the shameful, degrading end of the cross. This idea of, of crucifixion, undeserved, so full of reproach and the, and the mocking that was there. 
It was a shame he despised. It's interesting. This is the, the only time that this, this verb here, despised, when it says despising the shame, it's used in actually kind of a positive reference. Everywhere else is used as, well, in, in a way that makes more normal sense to us of despising someone and looking down on them. But here, Jesus despised the shame that was wrapped up and inherent in the cross. It didn't phase him. That shame didn't deter him. Ah, but for us, isn't shame and scorn so prone to deter us, even from just a simple gospel presentation or from, or from clearly proclaiming why it is we believe what we believe or why we do what we do? Even just the, the possibility of someone saying, you sound like an idiot. That deters us. And yet, Jesus... The Son of God was mocked and scorned as a lying, demon-possessed, deluded, crazy person for living the life of faith that he did and then going to the cross to die. And yet he despised that shame and he persevered to the end. He kept the goal in mind. He persevered to the end and he achieved his objective. What does Paul say in Philippians? He's given the name that's above every name. Right? That name is the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see in Revelation 5 that power and authority and dominion are given to him. Ultimate honor is coming his way and glory and worship will be forever his. He kept the goal in mind. He persevered to the end. And he achieved his objective. So you, th- you think of all that, all of who Jesus is, that one word, Jesus. It encapsulates all of that, all of his life, all of his work, all of his being. You think of the sublime transcendence of all of that. And now let's think of the myriad of things that pull our gaze off of him. Little things. Paltry things. Even things that we, that we think are big. If you take Jesus and that thing and you put them up in relation to each other, this fades. Jesus is magnified and the hardships of, of this life of faith are, 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 are shrunk. And we realize they have no power. They're impotent. So you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and you run, runners. You run hard. And you run long. And as you run, implement this fifth key. You sustain your soul with the Savior. What Jesus did, despising the shame, enduring the cross for the sake of the joy that was before him, obtaining his victory, what Jesus did is to be the object of our purposeful meditation. Okay? Before we saw setting your gaze on the Savior. But now we see sustaining your soul with, with a purposeful meditation. Um, we're to consider Him and all that He did, all He endured, because it has a sustaining effect. There's a danger of growing weak. There's a danger of getting tired in our souls. Have you, have you ever felt that? When you look around at, at your life and your circumstances and you feel beat down? I I have. That's a real danger. It's a real possibility. 
makes me think of Lamentations as we studied a little while back. How, how the reality of that is that life is hard and life presses you down. But what did Jeremiah do then and what are we encouraged to do here? <coughs> Excuse me. You consider. You set your mind. You, you purpose your thoughts towards Christ. The author of Hebrews knows our very momentum and energy can be drained by the adverse circumstances around us. Persecution and hardship, they can grind our, our, our very heart and soul to the point of desperation. And so he says, consider Christ. It's that purposeful action of setting your mind on him and giving him a good, hard, long think. Who is he? What did he do? Where is he at now? How does that have bearing on me? How does that inform me? How does that affect me? You consider the one who endured such hostility from sinners. They pointed all their anger and their wrath and their scorn and betrayal at the Son of God. And he endured it. He endured it unto victory and joy and redemption and God's pleasure and God's glory. And when we endure hostility from sinners, when we endure hardship that makes us think this is too much, we can't go on. Surely this is not the course that God had for us. This can't possibly turn out right. You consider Christ. If what Christ went through can turn out for joy and pleasure and God's glory and fulfillment of, of the life of faith... And as you consider those things, you realize that any situation we find ourselves in can and will end up the same. And so when our, when our hearts and souls are tempted to be worn down by that, then we consider Christ so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Look at what Christ endured. Such hostility. Not just hostility. Such hostility. And as you consider, you'll be refreshed. You'll be sustained. You will not grow weary and lose heart. So we see the bygone saints. We shed what holds us back. We settle in for the long haul. We set our gaze on the Savior. And we sustain our soul with the Savior. But we must be running God doesn't set a course out before a cheerleader. We talked about this already. We're going to talk about it again. He doesn't say, here's a race, now cheer. He doesn't set a race before a water boy. He doesn't set a course in front of a parking attendant or a concession seller. He sets a race out in front of a runner. And so as we consider these, these five keys, it's crucial to first take a hard look at, at ourselves and to say, are we even running? Are we in the race? If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if you haven't been forgiven of your sins by, by confessing them to God and asking for, for cleansing by His work on the cross and by the blood that He shed, if you haven't been adopted into God's family by means of those things, you're not in the race. You're not in the race. But today can be the day. You confess your sins. You ask for forgiveness. 
from God through Jesus. You acknowledge him as the risen and reigning Lord and you can be in the race. A race toward eternal bliss and joy and satisfaction and wonder and worship as contrasted with the race that we sang about earlier. My hellbound race. The race towards doom and destruction and punishment justly deserved punishment for the sin that we committed. So in a sense, we're all racers. One way or the other. And by the work and forgiveness of Christ, you can join this race. There's no better race to be in. And if you are a child of God, if you already are in the race, my question is this. Are you running it? Are we running it? You only have one race to run. We realize that, right? We're, I mean, we're, we're the, especially the nation of second chances, whether it's tests or athletic events or, or any of those types of things. But we have one race to run, and there are no second chances. There are no re-races, recounts. So the question is, are you running or are you refusing to acknowledge your status as a runner? Maybe, maybe you're, you're over on the sidelines and you're chucking rocks at those who are actually running hard. Look at those super spiritual people. See if I can nail them and distract them as I make fun of them. Maybe you're sitting in the middle of the track. You know, bemoaning how hard it is. Complaining about the length of the race. And as you sit there in the middle of the track, other runners are having to, having to jump over you. Hurdle you so you don't bring them crashing to the ground. Maybe you're, maybe you're leaning against the water cooler, sipping a cup of water, talking about, man, that last leg of the race was really good. I nailed that leg. But you've been talking about it for about 12 years. Are you running? What racer doesn't run? So you get up. Get out there. Run. You run hard. You run for your life. God has set a course before you and he's made you a runner. You are in the race. So run. And as you run, keep these five things in mind. So that you can race with speed, endurance, joy, victory. And the knowledge that at the end of your course, God will say to you, well run, racer. Take your shoes off. Enter into your postseason rest. But you got to run. We'll close in prayer. If you have questions about running the race or even getting in the race of salvation, the gospel, come find me. I think we'll have somebody off to the side as well to, to talk and pray. If you have questions about those things or you need encouragement in your race, you need help shedding those things that, that keep you back, whatever the case may be, come up and, and, and talk to us. Let's study the Word. Let's see what God has to say about that. Let's pray. Lord, it's a big charge. You've set a, a course before us and you've given us the honor and the privilege and the blessing to, to be racers I am so humbled by that and so ashamed even of the times when I find myself sitting in the track. I find myself hampered by the, the things that are slowing me down, getting tripped up by sin, 
But you sent your son to die so I could be a racer for you. So I could, so I could run towards eternity in heaven and not towards hell. And I thank you and I praise you. Help us all, Father, by the strength of your spirit, by the wisdom in your word, by the power that's in us, the same power that resurrected Christ from the dead. Help us to run, we pray. The Mission Road would be a church that is growing, growing in grace and knowledge of Christ, growing in sanctification, growing in impact in this community and in the world. Help us to, to run and to run hard, to run for your glory, God. We love you. Thank you. And I pray for effectiveness as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.